Welcome to Tech Kitchen Talks, episode 11. In this episode, Dave from Silicon Valley and myself, Glenn from London, discuss how organizations have pivoted their business. Do we need to care about California's ADCA and other items that have caught our attention this week? If you would like to join our exclusive free community for technology leaders, please sign up at techkitchen.io, where you can join our Slack group and keep the conversation going. Hi again, Dave. Hey, Glenn. Great to see you. Great to see you too. So we're both recently back off holiday, so hopefully our moods are lifted and we're going to try and keep today's episode incredibly positive and there's nothing wrong with the world. I'm going to do my best. Excellent. Keep it positive. And with that in mind then, so the first topic we're going to try and cover is the surprising survival of companies over the pandemic. As we're coming up to, you know, potentially a recession, it's nice to look back at companies that have actually survived the COVID pandemic issues and seen how they've actually been able to pivot. A few of the, you know, like the property office space letting spaces have still been able to stay in business, which has really surprised me, especially considering a lot of people work from home and the whole industry of hybrid work is now in place. So, I mean, have you got any examples that spring to mind from your standpoint? Well, are you talking about WeWork? Is that the example still standing? Well, yes, it is still standing. Our, our office in London is actually a WeWork office. I'm surprised they haven't changed their policies to make it, you know, like dedicate an entire floor to organizations that only need it once a month. You know, something like that I would have expected to happen, but they're still running. We still use them. I know they used to, they were giving away like extra space. So giving you larger offices to keep their clients on on the hook to not just go away. So oh, if you get this double the size space, you'll get to keep the same price for 12 months or something like that. So they uh, seem to negotiate their way through the situation quite well, I feel. I think that our intention to remain positive is about to come crashing down. <laughs> Go ahead then, Dave. We are also at a WeWork here in San Francisco, and uh, it's nice to see people coming back in recently. But I live a little north of San Francisco, and I often used to go to a small co-working space here in the area, and that's gone. Uh, they couldn't survive COVID. And I think that it's hard not to see this huge divide. Uh, we see all this um, so-called innovation uh, and pivoting in the tech space, companies like WeWork, uh, you know, quote, surviving COVID. But in reality, most uh, co-working spaces were suffering terribly. And the one around here is gone. WeWork is not profitable. They have tons and tons of investment. And I just think it's a great example of organizations and people that already had huge amounts of cash behind them and investment equity available to them being able to survive this not only because they have a lot of money, but largely because of that. I mean, WeWork is, how many businesses can be that unprofitable? Their EBITDA was $400 million in the red, I think, in Q2, and they're still going. Well, Uber, Amazon, they seem to be able to just pull money out whenever they need to as well, don't they? Yeah, I mean, it's sort of the same thing. Uh, looking at this divide, they were huge benefactors, or uh, they benefited wildly from COVID. DoorDash. Netflix, it's incredible. The numbers about uh, very rich people becoming incredibly more rich during COVID are just staggering and disheartening. So I think, um, you know, when it comes to the IT space, yeah, of course, the rich get richer. 
Of course, WeWork is still here. They kind of have unlimited runway. They cannot possibly go wrong. Adam Newman just got $350 million for his next debacle, which if we really want to get negative, we can talk about that. But that's off topic. I think if we want to see more kind of um, uh, authentic or realistic pivoting, people that are really flying without a net, we get out of the VC world and look at actual companies that are, you know, they, they don't have venture money behind them. I mean, they're actually trying to function, keep their employees happy. And we saw it all over the place. There were gyms all over the world that figured out ways to go virtual or to get outside or things like that. You had mentioned that company, uh, Just Be Honey, which I hadn't heard of. But that was actually a pretty impressive pivot. They had a, a drink, like a sort of a health drink, but nobody wants to you know, get this on-the-go drink because they're not outside anymore doing impulse purchasing. So they switched to a, like a health and nutrition product in the same space. That's a real pivot. There's a lot of good stuff happening, I think, in the brick-and-mortar world. That's where the real pain was. And I think the, yeah, the IT world can sort of look at that instead of being so self-congratulatory about our great pivots, having $600 million in the bank. Look at some of the things that happened, some of the restaurants that survived and things like that. I think that's that's the impressive story. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, if the recession comes to fruition as everybody's predicting it's going to be, it's going there's likely to be a very challenging time for lots of different companies over the next 12 to 24 months. And looking back at how certain companies were able to get past the COVID situation is a great way to change your mindset, especially around your organization strategy of how to approach this. One of the books I've been reading is a good strategy, bad strategy, actually. It's quite, it's a bit, a bit of an old one. I think it's 20 years old, but they gave lots of different examples about organizations pivoting from what they had to something new and like the just be honey and the CEO is a friend of a friend. Um, of mind. So it's like, you know, it's really interesting to see someone that you actually know been for drinks with actually make such intelligent understanding of going, right, you know, doesn't matter what I do, market this, you know, people are not in the street in the local shops to purchase my product. What do I do now? I've been able to just cut ties, just focus purely on a new strategy, a new product that you can actually sell online was, you know, the best thing for them and kept the business going. And there's lots of cases like this out there that I think people need to be aware of and start to consider, especially the fact that we don't know how the economy is going to change. And, you know, if you've got a low price product, is that going to affect you with a recession or not? If you've got a high price product, uh, as you say, the rich are going to keep on getting richer. So therefore you can still sell your Rolexes or your Bentley cars, or, you know, do you need to think about a different market to be focusing on? So it's an interesting time to sort of take a step back and just reconsider what's going on. Considering things aren't too bad, taking out the fact, you know, the cost of living crisis over here, the energy market pricing is too high. So it's, you know, there are challenges, but I think there's an expectation things are going to get worse before they get better. And yeah, essentially, while we've just come off... Um, happy holiday for most people just having a you know taking a step back having a strategy th thought about what your organization should and should not be doing as it goes through the next few years is always interesting yeah and i agree this is a time uh, to get ahead of it because we don't know what this recession is going to look like things are really strange with high employment and high inflation what kind of recession is this but things are stabilizing post covid but there are clearly changes in the way that we work the way that we shop how we eat the way we receive programming, curbside delivery, all kinds of stuff. And the time to start uh, adjusting to what's to come, I think, is, is now. 
You know, one of my favorite pivots uh, for COVID is a brand called uh, IHOP. Do you know what that is? Do you guys have that in the UK? I've heard of it, but I don't actually know. I assume it's just like a sports store. It's not a sports store. It's an American restaurant chain. It stands for the International House of Pancakes. And oh, okay. when I was a kid, it was a beloved breakfast place to go. You know, in the weekend, in the morning, you'd go with your parents and eat the pancakes. And it still is that. But they, for years, have been trying to expand their brand and do dinners and things like that. And I think they've had some trouble doing that. But it's still a sort of a beloved American thing. During COVID, I started seeing on DoorDash something called Thrilled Cheese. It was a grilled cheese only restaurant um, serving all kinds of uh, kind of hipster grilled cheese and just fancy things. And they were getting great reviews. People loved it. And uh, they were killing it. It turned out IHOP, during COVID, they were really hurting because they relied so heavily on their weekend breakfast scene. And during the lockdown, they were screwed. They decided to start running these virtual delivery kitchens that could go uh, 24-7 sometimes, you know, lunch, dinners, under a totally new brand. And they kept it very stealthy because it didn't really work well, the IHOP brand. And they now have at least one other secret, like dark kitchen uh, brand going out of their IHOP brand. That's a really impressive pivot. That's a heavy lift of a pivot. That's tough. That involves a lot of change management and things like that. I think that innovation is the kind of thing that we really want to see instead of some of the easier pivots uh, that we saw in the IT business. And there's a lot of examples of that. So I think the time is now uh, for everybody to start shifting around uh, to the new reality, whatever that is. Sure. And it's much better to like have a strategy before you need it. So if you start to plan, if the worst happens, how does your organization need to pivot before you start just sacking people and trying to keep your overheads low, actually understanding what your business is going to do, which people you need to keep yes. before you start just laying off people and then, you know, having to pay recruitment fees to now hire some people back in after the fact. Yeah. Instead, go from pancakes to grilled cheese. It can be done. Excellent, excellent. I don't know of a single grilled cheese shop in the UK, but I'm sure there is one. Uh, obviously, I'm not hipster enough for that. We call them toasties over here, Dave. Thank you. So moving on. <laughs> <laughs> so moving on to the next uh, next topic. As you've probably definitely seen this, the California Age Appropriate Design Code Act, ADCA. Essentially, it's supposed to try and protect child safety online. And there's some you know, big fines per child, you know, for, for each violation. What is this, Dave? I've, I've had a little look through, tried to understand it. It'll be great to get your point of view on uh, this legislation because California has been a leading aspect for putting in place laws that then fall into other states across the US. And yeah, what's your view on this one? My view is generally positive uh, on this one in that I like the intent of it. I think it's a good idea. California is an enormous economy, so it is possible for California, you know, to do this kind of thing and have effects uh, on the whole world. So I think it's it's a little bit mixed as far as the idea of it and the intent and the need for this type of thing. I'm 100% behind it. I think it's a little bit like in the ESG world, where these are very early days. So what is ESG? How do we, you know, how do we manage that? There's really no metric. It's difficult to enforce. So what are we doing? But I still like the idea of there being ESG certifications and things like that. We need to mature that. And it's the same with child protection. I mean, we all feel the impact of what social media in particular, but all kinds of systems have done with kids and eating disorders and depression and suicide. 
So I'm all in. I love it. When we get down into the details, it gets a little sticky, and I think it's going to be very, very difficult, uh, certainly to enforce, and I suspect that this will get bogged down in a sea of injunctions and legal challenges all over the place, and maybe not go anywhere. It will actually be worse if it does get you know fully passed and implemented because of our wacky U.S. political system where each state you know, has these, these broad abilities uh, to legislate certain things. If California uh, creates a law that says, you know, our uh, attorney general will decide who's going to be prosecuted and what constitutes safety for children, then Texas can now do the same. And Pennsylvania can do the same. And Florida and Vermont, they're all going to look different. And it's it's completely unworkable. So that's that's going to be a mess. But I, I'm glad it's happening. Yeah, and as you say, it's the devil in details. What they're actually stating is that any child that may come across your site, this would fall under. So it's not just about, you know, like pornographic sites or, you know, violent content that may be shown. It's any website that a child may come across. Therefore, you have to do age verification for access. And as you say, the implementation aspect of this is going to be a killer. How do you do age verification without having to share your details and a you know, proof of photograph with every website you ever go to? You know, I, you can't trust anyone with your data, let alone some little website where you're just trying to read a news article. Right. And then we're talking again about privacy and it, it just seems to be impossible. You seem very much um, much happier and you know positive mindset around this topic. Where with me, it's like this hasn't been thought through. You know, yeah, you can have pressure on politicians going, who wants to vote against protecting children online? Nobody does. But if the implementation is right. going to be, it takes it's a bad soundbite. Exactly. But if it takes away your privacy, takes away the ability for an organization to operate, or even allow people to visit your site anonymously. There's huge issues and impact onto the web for that. And, you know, most children utilize their parents' phones or tablets or computers as well. So essentially, if there is some way to remember like cookies that you've got access and, you know, then a child goes on, who's responsible in that standpoint? It seems a little bit messy. And I know the EU and the UK governments haven't been great at this either, especially around privacy laws. We're definitely more happy to take away people's privacies than other countries than I would definitely like it to be. But don't you think it's good that governments are thinking about these things and kind of we're trying to work towards some viable framework. Yes, but who are the decision makers putting these proposals together? Because whoever put this this one together obviously wasn't aware of the ramifications of such a proposal. Otherwise, it would be drastically different to what was put forward. Agreed. So I guess I think, uh, yeah, it's, it's going to be a disaster if implemented and totally unworkable. And yet still, I am happy to be having the conversation because it needs to happen. And I think the EU might actually do a better job because the EU has sort of been on a roll lately, putting out legislation and regulations that are a little more thought through than this. There's one piece of this that I really do like and I think could be could actually work well, which is my understanding is that part of this law is that each uh, company that's releasing an online service that may be used by children has to go through a sort of an audit uh, of each feature that is to be exposed to children and uh, how children are protected in regard to privacy and things like that. 
and uh, any kind of like social or political wrongdoing influence all that. I'm not sure exactly the details, but that's my understanding. And then they have to keep a document that shows that they've done that. So this is a little bit like if you're a real estate developer and you're building some huge thing, you have to do an environmental study and that has to go on file with the government, I think is what they're going for. This I actually really like. And the reason I like that is because in the event that there are some kind of horrific outcome, you know, or children are damaged or something like that, at the very least, we can get out of the business of deciding how do we determine someone's age, right? Who's making these decisions, but we can look back and we can see if the company did or did not think it through, taking into consideration whatever information was available at that time and what their plan was and the degree of their effort, you know, to protect children. And that could open them up to liability or civil litigation, or at the very least, they can get called out for it, right? It would be very interesting to know what's really happening behind the scenes in Instagram or Facebook. What are they actually doing and how does it relate to their business as a whole? I like the idea of big tech companies being open to liability, not for some arbitrary rule that somebody just made up, but for their kind of degree of due care and effort to, quote, do the right thing. We can't really know what that is right now, but we could run it through the courts if we had to, make them write it down. I actually like that part. What do you think? Hmm. No? I see grimacing over there. I've got a lot of problems with this entire space because, you know, what stops, you know, TikTok is essentially, you know, Chinese originated. I think I think they've got a corporation now based in the US, haven't they, for like the way they work after Donald Trump here were forcing that to be in place. But is every organization going to have to set up an office in the US just to be able to run a website and then obviously go through these processes? What was if you're just running a little blog? I mean, the main thing that annoys me is the California Attorney General would have exclusive jurisdiction to enforce the law. It's like going onto the UK streets, making all roads one mile an hour, and if anyone goes above it, the attorney general can determine who they're going to prosecute. So therefore, there's a lot of ability for them to just pick and choose, you know, political opposition or people they don't like to, you know, it's a law that everyone breaks. If you go one mile an hour to go anywhere, you can't do anything. Same with the website. If you, you constantly have to change your website, change your platform, improve it, do you have to then get verified off every update, every release cycle that you do? You know, it's, there's a lot of operational issues that I see with it and I see a way of, someone making a lot of money about verification or something like that where it can be abused for the wrong purposes or for you know somebody please think of the children simpson's quote why is that so such a reach uh, if you're operating doing some kind of healthcare in the US you have to be hipaa compliant right if you're operating in the EU there's a whole bunch of compliance you have to do so granted uh having california legislate this for the whole world that seems a little ridiculous but I'm not really opposed to there being uh, something. It would be good if it was US-wide or EU-wide or if everybody had a shared regulation. But I think there should be something. And I think there's plenty of money going around to pay for it. I'm not that worried that TikTok, who has more minutes with children than all other streaming services combined now, I'm sure they can afford to, uh, you know, to, to invest some some money into this. I kind of want it. I don't want it to be run by California and every other state. 
But I think this is a good idea. I think there's there's got to be something. Otherwise, it's just a runaway train. I mean, are you an anarchist? Libertarian? I, I wouldn't call myself an anarchist. Going from the original days of computer science, information should be free to all. And therefore, being able to share your point, you know, freedom of speech and all that stuff there. I agree there needs to be some limitation around it. But if you've got an AI like TikTok, which all it does is provide you videos, what type of verification would you expect to be an outcome of that to make you happy that a child uses TikTok, that every child uses TikTok, not just your child, where you could control potentially some settings inside there? So I see the operational issue and it goes against the original basis of the web. What about all the algorithms being public and transparent, which has been proposed? Elon Musk came out and said he wanted to do that with Twitter, I think, didn't he? How many people can read AI algorithms and understand them? And in all fairness, even the people that I, I think I saw, even all the people that write them inside Google, nobody actually understands the entire algorithm because it's so large. And it's like, okay, well, you can publish it, but no one's going to be able to verify anything against it. Uh, open source it. It's a nice idea. I still don't think it means anything or produce any outcome. I think they should open source it. I think it does mean something. I mean, that's really freedom of information. And uh, there are people that can understand it. Someone can do it. Somebody wrote it. Somebody can figure it out. And uh, if there, it gives everyone the opportunity to go back and have a look. Uh, so when there's some kind of, you know, huge debacle that goes on, a mental health issue, at least we can look back at the algorithm and then try to determine whether the company was sort of, you know, sinister in their motive, or if it was just an inadvertent thing. So legislating these things ahead of time, saying this is what it means to define who is and who is not a child, here are the behaviors that are good and bad, that gets very sticky. But transparency and making sure that there's an audit trail and we know what companies are doing so that we can later go back and judge their intent, I think that's a good thing. It has Something has got to happen. Things are getting out of control. <laughs> I mean, I... Uh, aren't you a little frightened of the uh, of just having no guardrails at all? Currently, no, but I don't have children, so maybe that's why I'm less exposed to what the perceived risks of this are than someone like yourself. So maybe that's why my view is currently a little bit different because I don't see a child flipping through stuff and then seeing some horror film being advertised to them or some inappropriate content. I'm not exposed to the bad side of things because I'm not in that position currently in my life. It, things are weird with the kids, although kids are very resilient too. So, Well, kids are very smart. You know, essentially, they when they look at Instagram, they know it's fake. They know that it's posed pictures. When they look at TikTok, I think that rather than trying to protect kids, educating kids is the most important thing. And therefore, those that understand what these companies do and you know what life is really like so therefore they're not harmed by it maybe that's a better approach than to constantly trying to add regulation stifle existing organizations and new organizations be able to come into the market to compete well there's certainly no pivot in our personal opinions on how much we should be screwing big tech and it forcing them so. to, to to protect people if you're looking to employ someone very smart and very sexy voice on the podcast you know where i am guys uh <laughs> <laughs> okay then so we should probably move on from there but it is very interesting to see i agree trying to put regulation in early is a good thing to do because regulation is very slow so tr anything that's trying to improve the sector is useful but i think that's well off the mark the adca currently personally so dave what's got your attention this week did you hear about the 
art competition in Colorado, and somebody entered a very beautiful piece of art that was generated by Stable Diffusion. It was an AI-generated art. He prompted it uh, via text, and it won. <laughs> and it caused a, a big stink. Did that make the news over in the UK? Yes, it has done. Uh, I think it was last week that it came by. I was in Italy at the time, so I haven't actually caught up on it, but I did hear something about this. Maybe it was even two weeks ago, but I did hear something about this. I mean, if it's digital art, I don't see a problem. Essentially, whoever wrote the algorithm is obviously very clever, and if it depends if he just used some free online tool to generate it or whether he actually wrote it himself. He used a free online tool. It was the new Stable Diffusion uh, AI and uh, if you get a chance to see the actual piece of art, it's really very nice. It was wonderful. So his claim was that he wrote the prompt, and it wasn't. Uh, there was no rule against it, so he should win. I don't really care about that. Whether or not he uh, was qualified to win this art competition in Colorado, I'm not very interested in. But it is amazing that AI has reached this level. And I have now said that like 30 times in the last 18 months. What is happening in AI is just phenomenal. I was playing with Stable Diffusion because there's a free demo going around, and it is incredible uh, what it can do. But there is a very robust uh, conversation going on about uh, what's actually happening here and what it means. The training set that they used with Stable Diffusion in particular was mostly uh, pin, well, they, they listed out the, I think the 14 or 15 largest sources of the data. The number one thing they trained on was Pinterest. The second was something called Fine Art America, which is a, an e-commerce site that sells art prints and things like that. The third was Shopify. After that, it was Wix, Squarespace, and it went on and on. So what is going on with intellectual property? What does this mean? because it's taking other images and reprocessing them. Are they derivative? What happens to artists? I think, um, I, and I don't have answers to any of this, but this is a huge conversation. And I think it's super interesting and there's gonna be a lot of good stuff coming out of it. But who owns it? What does it mean? What, who owns that art? If it's been edited enough, I'd say the person that put in the right search tool, uh, search term to obviously generate that art. I assume the picture is the one that looks like it's from Doctor Strange with them make, opening up a portal, yes. yeah? That's the one, <laughs> That's isn't the it? One. It, yeah. It's pretty cool, isn't it? <laughs> it looks it looks good. Yeah, it looks, uh, it looks interesting. I'm not an art connoisseur. You know, essentially, you see people with that draw an X with a red paint and then they call it art. It's like, I've got no idea what to make of that. So, yeah, I'm, I'm not the right audience to be quantifying the value of uh, any art piece, to be honest. Uh, but, you know, it, it's interesting to see and it's good that these conversations are happening now where, you know, someone wins this and then then they could put a rule in place saying, okay, all art must be generated by hand and not by automated machinery, if that is a restriction they want to put in place. But it's the same thing like with the Olympics, you know? When they say Olympians can't use utilize steroids, I'm like, well, no, let's have a different Olympics for those that use steroids, and it will be amazing. So let's do the same thing for art competitions. If they want to ban this, allow, you know, any technical tools available to you to compete and it's going to be amazing and those that actually have you know manual skills have been able to paint can have their own little competition on the side their own little competition on the side 
that's devalued the art industry quite heavily there. So I think my phrasing wasn't right. So again, you don't have the sort of social fears and concerns as I, you're very bold. You're ready to be like a cyborg. Because just attach a, a new arm to me, Dave, and I'll be ready to go. Uh, yeah, and I'll be over in the little competition <laughs> on the side. But what about? There's some pretty interesting examples. For example, if you type in to stable diffusion, you know, show me, you know, Mickey Mouse with a green hat running surfing through a forest, and it'll crank something out. So what about this one? Now somebody owns that likeness. So now what's happening? Is it? What do we do with that? And there's a lot of examples like that. Well, if you got Mickey Mouse, I'm sure Disney Company is going to be after you if it looks at anything like the real Mickey Mouse. There's no chance on earth you're going to get away by publishing anything from them. Again, you know, it's all around copyright, I'd assume. And, you know, if there was a picture of me getting generated out there, I'd say that I'd have a fair right to claim copyright over any imagery that's generated with my face on it. I would assume, as you can't see any faces on the picture that's won, there's nothing discernible or copied from anywhere else. It's just been utilized as a training model. So it definitely does put a gray line in the middle of what is ethically allowed and what is not. So, yeah, I mean, essentially, from my perspective, if there's no rules broken, then congratulations. And it's the, up to the regulatory bodies to change the rules if they don't think it's fair. All right. I'm going to try one more time to see if I can get some some kind of uh, concern from you. How about this one? If this particular AI trained on Pinterest more than anything else, right? And now this particular AI were to become like a leading source of content, which I don't think will happen. There's many AIs like this, but let's say this one, for whatever reason, becomes hugely prominent and is then influencing culture in a big way. Just as uh, Grammarly, is now having a massive effect on the English language, right? So who's controlling that? What does that mean? Now we have an AI that trained on Pinterest, which is now feeding back. So are we not in a, in a feedback loop where we're just becoming a Pinterest world? Are people who are not on Pinterest represented? Do we want that, right? Is that a good thing? Any concern there? I'm struggling to see the concern. I mean... Oh, you're killing me. Anybody can come along and paint a picture of the UK Prime Minister, uh, I don't know, sitting on a on a puppy, squishing it to death and go, well, you know, that's, that, you know, that's fake news. That's, you know, false information. That's not what they're trying to do here. They're trying to do art. So therefore, it's, you know, yeah, you can use AI to fake videos and make it look like people are saying things they're not, that is something that concerns me. Because obviously, if it's not clear that this is a AI-generated output, and therefore people start to believe that, you know, something that is not true is true, then that's an issue. Well, of course that's going to happen. That, that's. But, does that need to be said? And that's already here, though. That's already here inside the video community, though, isn't it? So this art piece is sort of a non-issue for me considering that this technology already exists in both the audio and the video sphere i'm not going to look at a painting and be concerned about what's happening with my country it's going to be a video or audio file that makes it sound like my prime minister or the queen or you know or member of the monarchy is saying something they shouldn't be so that's that's more of a risk than the art world okay all right fair enough i mean i do appreciate your optimism on it. And maybe that is I'm bright-eyed and optimistic. I mean, I think I'm generally optimistic about the state of humanity. So it's only when we dig down into some of these issues do I become a little more pessimistic or fearful of the potential outcome. 
And I do agree that generally things will probably be okay. I'm not worried that this is going to ruin the world. I think this is going to get out of control. I think that there's going to be some some weird, unfortunate things happening from this technology. But it is amazing. And I did just type in Mickey Mouse surfing through a forest, and it came right up. So, And did it look like Mickey Mouse? Absolutely. I'm surprised Disney's not all over them. But who are they suing? Because it's open source. So is it the manufacturer? Is it Pinterest? Is it me? It's a whole new world of intellectual property. Is the data set open source then? Well, uh, in Pinterest, I suspect, is, uh, I don't know. Who owns, if you put your vacation shot on Pinterest for your spectacular life, who owns that image? I, th- I suspect Pinterest does. If it's public, then yes. I'm like, same thing with Facebook. Anything you post on Facebook or any of these platforms, I believe, is um, they're allowed to utilize it however they want. But, All right. Wow. Okay, then, cool. It, it's interesting how we how we don't see the same risks in this area. So it'll be interesting to see in a couple of years how you're right. And obviously, I've missed something obvious here about what the potential risks are around this type of technology. Yeah, I think what, it'll probably be somewhere in the middle. I think you're also right that everything will somehow be okay. And we live in a chaotic world anyway. So there's always new things coming. And there will also be good things. One thing I like about your perspective is... Uh, Something amazing will come of this that we've never thought of. There will be something new. All kinds of interesting things will happen. So we'll meet in the middle. (laughs) And uh, for me this week, uh, as everyone probably knows, the Ethereum merge is ongoing. You know, I'm not going to give any recommendations on what I think ETH is going to do from a price standpoint because that's not my game. I've got no idea. But from a technical aspect, understanding this move from proof of work to a proof of stake, the process, you know, this is like once in a lifetime thing to see, I think, of seeing such a large platform that's working in one direction actually be merged across into the beacon chain and actually making this happen. You're not going to see this many times in your life. And, you know, this could go all to pot and, you know, things get really bad or hopefully there's been enough testing, enough consideration about the approach they've been taking to do this that it could all be smooth but yeah i mean from a technical perspective it's historic making in my view seeing this uh, be in the middle of its progress okay here i agree enthusiastically the media is going berserk talking about the merge which is sort of the name of it it's the merge i think it's the the merge of all merges but so often the media has no idea what it means i've seen a lot of headlines and coverage that demonstrates that they don't really understand what's happening. But I agree with you. This is a, it's a very complex merge. And this is a fire hose of data going through it. There is a huge amount of money attached to it and a lot of kind of real-time transactions. And everybody's watching. So this is, the, this is a high-pressure merge. This is not like your little pull request, you know, to send your new feature out. This is the real thing. And it's distributed, which makes it even harder. It's not like it's your own servers where you can just roll things back easily or just, you know, change some code that you know you've got wrong. Yes, it's it's in the wild. And it has sort of a mix of of, uh, supporters out in the field, you know, people running nodes and people that are not into it. There's a lot of people that want to see it fail. There's a lot of people that were having a very nice time mining. Exactly. Make a lot of money from the mining that goes on there. I mean, the problem is I've lost a lot of trust in ETH because of how expensive things have got over the last couple of years. And yeah, moving to the proof of stake is great, but still we're not in mainstream blockchain world yet. 
we're not there. Things are going to get a lot heavier. And is ETH2 really going to be able to handle the load that is going to be required over the next 10 years as more organizations move onto the blockchain? Well, theoretically, it should, at least in terms of performance and security. Uh, will it reduce gas fees? I'm not, I'm not really understanding why the gas fees would just plummet after this. Uh, I get why they may go down, but they could go right back up. I'm not really sure Solana and Cardano are hanging around waiting to see. But I will say this. I'm with you that this is an impressive technical effort. I love that Ethereum uh, and the leadership has gone very, very slow. I am happy that this is so late because if there's one thing we need in the blockchain space, it's like some maturity and some sort of like sober, calm leadership. And this is no picnic. We've seen so many hacks and things, just stable coins disappearing. And it's just been a wild west. I think the whole brand of crypto and blockchain would benefit from a well-executed, complex uh, thing like this. So I'm, I'm rooting for them. We need this maturity. And what happens afterwards? Yeah, I'm kind of with you. I don't really care. I'm not trying to call Ethereum. I suspect it might go up if it's successful and the gas fees go down 50%. It'll probably jump. But who knows? If I was Cardano, I wouldn't be that worried. Well, I'd be worried if I was Cardano, but not because of this. Well, the reason I can't recommend other chains, well, I can't recommend Ethereum to build your Web3 project on is because of the gas fees. If Ethereum is able to get the gas fees down to practically nothing, then why would you utilize Cardano or a different provider if the fees are so low? But the thing is, like I say, I think it's going to take several years to understand what the true impact is. And if there is going to be another rise in gas fees because there's not enough miners as the network grows and there's more usage in the industry. You think that the staking uh, economy will sort of correct on that? I mean, that's the idea, is that if, if proof of stake, if the, if the economics of that really work, then there will always be just enough incentive uh, for people to stake and it'll grow and there'll be a, it'll scale very nicely and there should always be enough fees uh, to keep things moving, but no incentive for those fees to grow wildly and have $78 as a gas fee. It does make sense, but you know economics are famously difficult to predict. Exactly. I mean, for me, I, I wouldn't put my project onto Ethereum right now. I mean, I love to see that this happening, but I'd like to see other people kick the tires and fall flat on their face rather than me. So I'm happy to just wait it out and see if things do stabilize. And all we need is another NFT event, you know, where there's a new thing out that eats up a lot of um, the Ethereum blockchain space. And then suddenly we'll get to see how strong the ETH2 network really is and if it can really handle the type of growth that it's going to need to handle technically for the next 100 years. Well, don't worry, because anyone who has any idea to do anything on any blockchain can just go over to Andreessen Horowitz and get $50 million to give it a go. So there'll be plenty of testing. I also would be apprehensive to commit to it right now. But if they finish this merge and it works, I will be less apprehensive. I mean, I think Ethereum will really have solidified their status as really probably the most definitive foundational chain because blockchain has nowhere to go. And that means that Ethereum is sort of the, the quote, best for what it is. It's a good brand, at least. We're getting there.
Yeah, yeah. It's a small step towards a stable solution for the future where it can actually be used for real use cases. Will they uh, finish the merge? Will they get it done? It's looking good so far. It's looking good. Obviously, we don't know when this episode's going to come out, but by that point, we could look very silly. But right now, it looks positive. But I don't have any inside knowledge to back anything of this up here. The coolest part of it is how they have the difficulty factor on new mining going up and up and up. And then they predict the point the merge will be done in, you know, two days and four hours and this many minutes and seconds because the difficulty will become so high it'll become impossible uh, to mine. And that's when they'll decommission uh, the old chain. And that's that's very cool. It's kind of science fiction. I can't imagine what's going on for miners right now. Are they trying to squeeze in the last few last few coins? It's been a nice moneymaker for them for a long time, I think. Yeah, good for them. Okay, we should probably wrap it up there, though. Uh, But yeah, great talking to you again, Dave. I think we kept some positive, but obviously, as always, some skepticism throughout our podcast today. Yes, it was a healthy balance. Absolutely. Kind of. (laughs) And I hope you all enjoyed from home. So uh, do check us out at techkitchen.io if you'd like to join our Slack community. And uh, thank you all for listening. Talk to you again soon. Thanks, Dave. Thank you. Bye.